You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Amen. Let's take our Bibles and turn to John's Gospel, chapter 4 this morning. John chapter 4. While you're turning there, uh, let me uh, connect a couple of dots for you maybe. Uh, as Jace was mentioning the Annie Armstrong Easter offering, it occurred to me, he did mention um, Tyler Martin, his wife Ashley, their family have been uh, church planting partners of ours for a few years now since the time that they launched Outfitter Church in Bar Nun, Wyoming. How many of you know where Bar Nun, Wyoming is? Okay, a few of you because you went to Bar None, right, Zach, Thomas? Um, yeah, we've taken a missions team up there the last two years. We'll do that again this summer. Uh, the, the, the dots that I want to connect for you are this. Um, the North American Mission Board uh, has partially funded Outfitter Church. So whenever you give to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering, know uh, that it goes to works like that. And here's the cool thing. Uh, Outfitter Church is getting ready to plant a church. Uh, because that's kind of like a gospel model, right? I mean, it's kind of a, it's a, a cool concept in Scripture that churches plant churches, right? And so um, we're looking forward to uh, being up there uh, later this summer, partnering with them. And the church that's going to be planted is in, in an even more remote area than Bar Nun. Bar Nun's actually outside of Casper, and so they're kind of in a... Uh, a little bit bigger area there, but uh, they're going to have some apprentices coming up there uh, to work with them for about a year and get ready to launch a new church up there. So uh, we believe that's very important. There are a lot of underserved uh, areas in our country uh, where there are a lot of miles between people. And uh, you've been to some of those areas, you know what I'm talking about. There are more horses than there are people, uh, but there are people that need the gospel. And so I hope that you will... Uh, prayerfully consider that, and I know some of your students especially are looking forward to uh, going back to uh, Bar None this summer, and so when it comes time to uh, get your car washed or whatever we might do to raise funds for that trip, please uh, help, and uh, it'll be an important time uh, in our summer ministries. Well, we're in John chapter 4 this morning uh, in our sermon series, Person of Interest. We are making our way, uh, you might think uh, rather slowly, through the Gospel of John, uh, we're now in the middle of a conversation, what I would say is a divine appointment between Jesus uh, and an unnamed Samaritan woman. Uh, last week we looked at the first part of this conversation where Jesus offers this woman uh, life-giving, soul-satisfying, thirst-quenching, living water. Uh, this living water, of course, that Jesus offers is an image of God's satisfying salvation, of his rich and everlasting blessing of eternal life and joy flowing from him and from him alone. So this woman asks Jesus, so where do you get this living water? Her question is one uh, that I think each person uh, needs to ask at some point. Maybe you're asking right now in ways that, that you don't even realize, where can I find that which satisfies? Now, at this particular point in the conversation, she's thinking of just H2O, of just physical water. And she's thinking, wouldn't it be an amazing thing if I didn't have to keep coming back to this well to draw water? If I could just get some of this living water that you're talking about, if I could just take in some of that, I wouldn't have to, I wouldn't have to thirst anymore, and I could, I could stop all of this. Well, before Jesus answers her question where uh, this living water can be found, he first wants her to understand her need for this living water. And so we pick it up in verse number 16 of uh, the fourth chapter of John's gospel. I hope that you'll follow along as I read. 
Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now I want to remind you that uh, in the first 15 verses of John chapter 4 here, we uh, entered into this, uh, this uh, conversation between Jesus and this Samaritan woman. And I want to remind you that uh, th- them even having this conversation would have been considered by many a, a scandalous encounter. Um, Jesus, if you know much about his earthly life and ministry, you've studied the Gospels much, you know that he faced regular criticism, uh, mainly from religious people. And one of the things that the religious people had an issue with was the kind of people that Jesus associated with. They're like, why are you eating with these people? Why are you eating with sinners? Why are you eating with tax collectors and that kind of thing? And so there were some cultural things going on here in this conversation. I mean, even she herself found it astounding that Jesus, a Jew, would consider allowing her, uh, her Samaritan cup to touch his Jewish lips. So this was a big deal, this conversation that they're having. So I want to start again, like I, I often do, by asking you a question. Are you a religious person? Are you a religious person? You may have been asked that even in recent days. And as I ask that, you may be thinking, Pastor, it's pretty obvious that I'm a religious person. I'm sitting in a worship service listening to you preach a sermon, right? And you may do that on, on the regular. <laughs> we may see you here week after week after week, and that's great. And so maybe it's that alone that would cause you to say, well, obviously, clearly, I am a religious person. Like, I'm into God. I'm, you know, I'm into spiritual things. It's not uncommon nowadays for people to say, well, I'm not really into organized religion, but I am spiritual. And so the question could be answered in a lot of different ways. But if someone were to ask you if you're a religious person or not, what would you say? You might ask, what do you mean by religious? And that would, that would be a good response. Uh, Because religion means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, and religion can be practiced in a variety of ways. I would say that religion fundamentally is man's attempt to get to God. Okay, we believe the biblical gospel teaches that God came down to man. Okay, that's kind of the essence of that conversation. But how how would you answer that question? I would remind you that in John chapter 3, where we were a couple of weeks ago, Uh, Jesus had a conversation with a very observant religious man by the name of Nicodemus. And yet the conversation didn't seem very fruitful. Nicodemus had an impressive religious resume, to be sure. He was a a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, And so he had this impressive religious resume, but he didn't seem ready to see himself as a broken sinner in need of salvation. 
as a dead man in need of new birth, as a lost man in need of a savior. So he's a picture of the truth that religion, based on our own knowledge and our own performance and without humble awareness of our deep brokenness and our profound need for salvation, is a very dangerous thing. It almost always leads to self-righteousness, to arrogance, to intolerance, and many times to discrimination. So people who live with that kind of religious mindset can often use theology as a weapon to attack others or as a shield to protect themselves from having to really deal with the real tough issues of life and their real true spiritual condition. So today in this conversation, we're going to see this conversation continue, and it'll continue into next week's message as well. So if you want to go ahead and read ahead, uh, you'll find that uh, this, this uh, account, encounter, this conversation, uh, it has an amazing ending. But today we're going to see Jesus confront one of the prevailing religious issues of his day particularly. And I want you to notice, first of all, that we find him in this conversation with a wounded woman. Again, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. So the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus uh, said to her, you, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, last week we saw that Jesus was working to expose this Samaritan woman's real thirst so that he could provide for her the living water of saving grace and soul-satisfying salvation that only he could supply. She didn't seem to get it. She didn't seem to understand much of what he was saying, though. And so in the end, she thought that he was naturally offering her a chance to never have to come to the well and draw water. So she asked for some of this living water that that he spoke of. Well, Jesus knowing that she didn't fully understand the nature of his offer to her, decided to change tactics a bit. It's masterful what Jesus does here. He asked her to go and get her husband. All of a sudden, this Samaritan woman, who had been fairly talkative up to that point, gets rather quiet. In fact, she utters, in the original Greek language, just three words. I have no husband, is how we translate it into English. Husband have not, basically, is how it would read in in the Greek. She provides no details, no explanation as to why this might be. She doesn't explain what happened to her husband, and based solely on her very short response, Jesus might have concluded that she was a single woman who never married. But Jesus knows everything about this woman. He's committed to meeting her deep needs, and to do this, she must be lovingly confronted with the truth. And so Jesus says, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have in fact had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now notice that Jesus commends her for telling the truth, which she technically did. He treats her with respect, even as he cleverly rebukes and corrects her and and, and goes to the truth of the matter, the heart of the matter, we might say. Now, we don't know exactly what happened with the Samaritan woman's five marriages. In fact, most Bible commentators are pretty quick to call her an immoral woman with a scandalously sinful past. That may be the case. Certainly, it's hard to imagine how a woman could have been married five times previously and be living with a man who was not her husband and to, at the same time, be without any fault in the failure of of those marriages. However, 
think there's something here that should give us pause. Cause us to tap the brakes just a little bit in passing that kind of judgment. Not be so hasty, jumping to conclusions. You've got to understand, in the first century, divorce laws allowed only men to divorce their wives and not vice versa. And to be able to do so for almost any reason. And so the fact is, we just don't know the reason for her marital failures. So it seems inappropriate and probably uncharitable to arrive at the worst possible conclusions. On some level or another, she had been discarded, as it were. She comes alone to the well in the heat of the day, which tells us with most, certain, with most certainty that as this Samaritan woman, she is overwhelmed by shame. She would avoid being in certain contexts naturally because she knew that she would face judgment from people. She was marginalized in the culture in which she lived. And so, but, but in this particular case, for healing to take place, medicine must be applied to the wound. And so, again, she comes to the, to the well in the heat of the day, and, and at the mention of her husband, it appears that a chord of shame has apparently been struck. Imagine this. Imagine if you are wounded somehow. You, you get a, a deep cut or something like that that requires you to go get emergency medical attention. You're in the ER. You're, you're going through triage and all that. You finally get back. Finally, a doctor comes in, and you refuse to show them the wound. Like, no, you just want to keep it wrapped up. Like, like you've got to know if you're going to get the attention that you need and if, if, if you're going to get better, <laughs> if there's going to be some healing that takes place, at some point, this thing's got to be exposed. Okay, it's, it's got to be cleaned out. There's some, there's some things, and sometimes that involves a bit of pain. And so that's kind of what we see happening here with this Samaritan woman. This is what Jesus is doing in his response to her. He's not simply trying to shame her or ridicule her. He wants to bring her shame actually into the open so that it can be dealt with, so that she can find healing and hope. But then there's this interesting turn in the conversation that I've called worship wars. We started hearing that kind of terminology a few years ago when uh, church leaders uh, had all kinds of strong opinions about how a worship service could, should be conducted. And most of those conversations uh, centered around the style of worship and those kind of things. And, and quite frankly, most of those things centered around preference, personal preference. Okay, that's not exactly what's happening here, however. She does not deny the accuracy of Jesus' statement. I want, I want to remind you of that. In fact, she affirms it by calling him a prophet. Can you just imagine? Here she is. She's thinking, I don't want to reveal a whole lot about myself. And suddenly Jesus is like giving her the deets. I mean, the details of, of like her life. Like, I know you. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there was never a point in her life where she felt so known, so exposed as she did in that moment. But then she immediately shifts the topic of conversation away from husbands, as you can imagine, and toward a theological dispute over the proper location of worship, oddly enough. Many religious people will engage in abstract theological debates in order to avoid dealing with the real deep issues of sin and shame in their lives. If you've ever encountered anybody in a spiritual conversation and, and, you, and you tried to steer it toward the gospel, you maybe have encountered this. When you start getting right down to the heart of the matter, right to the, to the heart of the gospel many times, it begins to, to kind of lay open some things about a person. Because quite frankly, a person can't fully understand their need for a savior if they don't know they're lost. If they don't know they're lost. Sometimes that's, that's hard news to hear. 
I can remember sitting in a personal evangelism class years ago in, in seminary, and the, the professor said, one of the first things you have to help people understand is how much they need Jesus. Not just to make good people better, but to make dead people alive. It's kind of hard to explain to somebody, check this out, man. You're like spiritually dead, bro. <laughs> that, that, that's not an easy conversation to have many times, right? And so she, she naturally kind of changes the subject here. Now, if you start talking to some people about very real, very practical issues of obedience or, or start addressing their heart issues, they will quickly uh, turn to a controversial theological topic. But this woman's redirection toward the topic of worship does seem to be genuine interest in this question. It was a central point of dispute between the Samaritans and the Jews. So the Samaritans pointed to Mount Gerizim as the place where both Abraham and Jacob erected altars at Shechem uh, and was thus the first worship site in the promised land. The Jews, on the other hand, point back to David bringing the ark and Solomon constructing the temple in Jerusalem, making Jerusalem the rightful place of worship. And, and oddly enough, if you, if you go to the city of Jerusalem today... Uh, it doesn't take you long to see that there are uh, various world religions that lay claim to that city. You'll look around and you'll see the crescent moon of, of Islam. And you'll look over here and you'll see the star of David representing Judaism. And you'll look over here and you'll see the cross representing Christianity. Because they all, in, on, in some way or another, lay claim to the city of Jerusalem. And so this was kind of what she was addressing here. Uh, and, 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 and so... Uh, but, but here's the thing we got to understand. Right worship is not a matter of geography. It's not a matter of geography. This may seem obvious, but this has been central in religious disputes for ages. So like right now, as a church family, we're excited about what, is, what God is doing uh, over on our new campus. You know, 20 acres on the other side of Highway 75. We have a building that's under construction right now. Uh, we are super excited about, about being in that new building, uh, hopefully, Lord willing, in the fall and, and all that that means. But here, here's the thing. We're not looking to that building and sitting over here saying, you know what, when we get moved in there, then we'll really be able to worship God. <laughs> like, there's nothing, nothing magical or mystical about new boards, new brick, new mortar, all those things that will somehow make that a more sacred space for, for worship or, or, or a place where we can meet with God in ways that we can't meet with God here. No, it's not about geography. And maybe there are some particular places uh, that, that you would kind of go back to. Maybe it was in a, a place on, on, on some family property or something where you had, uh, I mean, an encounter with God that so shook you to your core, uh, so changed your life that you would go back and say, this is a special place. That, that's great. But surely you understand that that is not the only place where you can go and worship God. So that was, that was a bit of this discussion here. Now you've got to understand, when the Jews were sent into exile, taken away to Babylon, they would always pray facing Jerusalem, longing for the rebuilding of the temple. Today, Muslims always pray facing Mecca. All Muslims expected to make a pilgrimage to Mecca at least once in their lives. Uh, in the Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox traditions, people go uh, on pilgrimages to certain sites, often to visit certain relics. Other religions like Buddhism, Hinduism, all have holy places, uh, pilgrimage sites. So the idea of geography being essential to worship is a pretty universal human phenomenon. 
In fact, when Christy and I, back in 2013, got to go to Israel, to the Holy Land, um, like I expected, there were some places where I thought, you know what, this spot right here has been pretty commercialized. This is pretty ridiculous. I mean, people placing so much emphasis on a particular spot, a particular location. If you go to the place that, that, that they would suggest is actually the birthplace of Jesus, it's like down in this grotto, and there's like this silver star on the floor. I mean, it's just like, it's just, you just go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. It's a pretty, pretty universal human phenomenon. And according to Jesus, it's completely misguided. Jesus said God is not nearly as interested in where we stand when we worship as he is with how our hearts stand before him. It's not where we worship, but how we worship that is most important. Before Jesus tells this Samaritan woman how God desires to be worshipped, he takes time to tell her that the Samaritans do not know God like the Jews do. And that salvation comes from the Jews. Now, we shouldn't see this as some sort of a discriminatory, ethnocentric statement. It's not. Jesus is just speaking the truth. I was listening to a podcast even this last week, and and, uh, the people on the podcast were talking about the exclusivity of the gospel. And naturally, in a pluralistic world like the one in which we live, a lot of people just find that appalling. They find it to be so arrogant to even suggest that Jesus, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, is the only way that a person can be in a right relationship with God. That's not something we've just conjured up. Like a bunch of preachers got together and said, hey, our way is better than their way. No, Jesus himself says in John chapter 14, we'll eventually get there, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he expands on that. No man comes to the Father except through me. That's the exclusivity of the gospel. So because the Samaritans have only the first five books of the scriptures, as we mentioned last week, their knowledge of God is incomplete. So Jesus is is, is making a point here. Before Jesus tells this Samaritan woman how God desires to be worshipped, he takes the time to tell her that the Samaritans don't know God like the Jews do and that salvation comes from the Jews. And so here's, here's the thing. What they do know of God has been mixed with pagan superstition and the corrupt worship practices that were introduced to the northern kingdom under Jeroboam who set up golden calves for the people to worship. Telling people the truth, as Jesus is doing here, is essential to helping people know God. But truth-telling can many times be badly distorted, both by angry and uh, vindictive discrimination that seeks to put others in their place, or by a truth-denying political correctness that seems to affirm all positions and all statements as equally true and valid, which is intellectual dishonesty at best. So we must love people enough, hear this, to lovingly tell them the truth. Whether it's something they want to hear or not. So tone has a lot to do with how we do that. Uh, Even the, the condition and position of our hearts as we share that many times. You know, what does Jesus mean when he says that salvation is from the Jews? Well, At the simplest level, he means that he, the Savior of the world, is Jewish and comes into the world through the Jewish people. 
But even more, Jesus means that he comes into the world in direct fulfillment of what has been spoken and prepared by God over the centuries through the scriptures and through the foreshadowing of Christ in the temple and tabernacle worship. So the oracles of the prophets and the ceremonial sacrificial worship of the priests, they both bring the promise of salvation to the world. And then Jesus comes to embody the fulfillment of that promise. I think I've mentioned before and even quoted from Mark Dever's work. He has uh, two works, kind of overarching views of both the Old and the New Testaments. And he has entitled the Old Testament one, Promises Made. The New Testament one is called Promises Kept. It's why we often say here, what seems to be concealed in the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. And so all these images, these pictures, these types that you see in the Old Testament, what are they pointing to? More importantly, who are they pointing to? They're pointing to Jesus. They're pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment. That's why the people of this day, when John the Baptist looks up and declares, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That would have fallen on their ears in a much more profound way than it probably falls on your ears. Because I doubt that many of you have been making animal sacrifices like on the weekends. or like Probably not doing that, right? No, and so he's saying, hey, he, here is the ultimate sacrifice, the one to which all of these other sacrifices that you've been making points. He's the fulfillment of all of that. And that's really the heart of what Jesus is saying here. So now that Jesus has come, worship no longer is tied to geography. And then I want you to notice thirdly from verses 23 and 24 that he addresses worthy worship. Worthy worship. So having addressed the Samaritan's woman mistaken ideas about worship, Jesus now tells her what kind of worship is pleasing to God. The hour is coming, is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. God is spirit. That's a reminder that God does not dwell in any geographical place and a call to give God the kind of worship that is suitable to him. This kind of thing was addressed by the prophets in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1, it says, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? God cannot be contained in some building. God cannot be sequestered to some region or some particular area. No, God is, God is omnipresent. In Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, God criticized the worship of his people by saying this. Listen carefully. Because this people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. Maybe that verse lands a little differently on you this morning. I know it does me. I may be the only one in the room this morning who's come to a worship service did all the right things, stood when we're supposed to stand, sit when we're supposed to sit, mouthed the words, listened to a sermon, all the things, bowed my head with everyone else, closed my eyes with everyone else, walked out the door knowing that the entire time my heart was so far from God. 
Can I even be more vulnerable with you today? And tell you to my shame, there's been times that I've preached sermons like that. Said all the right words. Did all the exegesis. Put together the, the, the sermon itself. Seasoned it with illustrations that people would connect with and all those things. All the while, my heart far from God. That's not true worship. That's not true worship. That's what's called in the King James Version, dissimulation. Dissimulation. It's a word that means play acting. It's the hypocritas. The hypocritas is borrowed from the, the ancient theater. It, 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 it ties in with that, that ancient symbol that we see for drama. Whenever you see two masks, one that's smiling and one that's frowning, that's the hypocritas. Because in the ancient theater, many times, one person could play two parts. And you know how they did that? Because they would wear a mask while they said these lines. They would change that mask out and put this mask on while they said these lines. That's where we get the terminology, he is so two-faced. That's the hypocritas. So it shouldn't be lost on us today that we, that we can come to this place every week. We can look like we've got it all together. We, we can look like we are genuine, I mean, sold-out worshipers of God. But only God knows our hearts. And Jesus, with this Samaritan woman, is getting to the heart of the matter. What, what does this even mean? To worship in spirit and in truth. Lots of ink has been spilled over, over debating and discussing the precise meaning of that expression. But it seems clear from the context that Jesus is saying that true worship must be from the heart. Offered in sincerity as opposed to hypocrisy. And according to God's word, aligned with God's truth. Remember, Jesus has twice corrected her already in this conversation for her rejection of the scriptures. He said, had you known the gift of God, meaning had you known the scriptures, because her culture, again, rejected 34 of the 39 books of, of the Old Testament, God had given his people. They'd rejected that. Then he said, you worship what you do not know. Why didn't the Samaritans know God? Because they rejected his word. So worship must be according to the word of God, taking in God's full revelation of himself in all of scripture. Again, that's part of the reason that, that one of our identifying statements here is we strive in every way to be biblically based, Christ-centered, and gospel-driven. One of the greatest compliments I could receive as a pastor came just the other day in the form of a brief message someone sent to me. said they'd been inviting a friend to church, they'd been watching online, and they said this, your pastor actually opens the Bible. For some of you, that may seem like a strange comment, but trust me, that doesn't happen everywhere, and I'm not saying that as a point of pride, I'm just saying, this is what I've been called to preach. This is what I've been called to preach. It's all I know to do. And so he's saying here, the truth and the spirit is how is God revealing himself to us by his spirit and through his word? It's God's revelation to us. So I think we can get so out of balance. You've got some that are so out of balance and so concerned with you know, just their right view of God and right definitions and precise theology. And all those things are important. But at the same time, their worship can be cold and distant and, and, and you know, very formal, very academic, we might say. 
God created us to be thinking people, okay? A lot of people would tell you today, if you're going to be a Christian, that means you've got to check your brains at the door. No, you don't. No, you can't love and you can't fully, what you don't know. So it's important that we know the truth. But how does that move us? How does that move us? That's why, again, we say here often, we don't want to come here every week just so we can get better informed. We want to leave here transformed by the power of God's word and by his Holy Spirit. That's the heart of what Jesus was saying here. Our worship must be in spirit and in truth, heartfelt and sincere and also accurate and honoring to what God has revealed about himself. But what does proper worship in spirit and in truth have to do with this woman's shame and her bad relationships? Everything. You see, only a true encounter with the living God in worship can bring us the grace and the love and the mercy and the peace to truly heal our deep brokenness and our shame. And that's why we are inclined to say many times when we're asked that question, are you religious we might say, well, we don't believe it's about religion, it's about a relationship. That's where that kind of comes from. So those who come hypocritically to worship leave many times untouched, unmoved, unhealed, because they have not truly worshipped God and they have not met with God. It's as if you're coming and listening to Mike's TED Talk. You might be somewhat inspired by it. You might find it intriguing, but fundamentally you're not changed. You've gone through the motions. Further, it's only as we learn to worship God rightly that we can be in right relationship with others. Worship is foundational for good relationships. That's why we often say, if you find a person, or maybe you yourself would say, I, it seems like I just have contentious relationships with everyone around me. And it starts in my own family, and then it goes from there to my coworkers and my neighbors. And like, I just have all kinds of interpersonal relationship issues in my horizontal relationships here on earth. You know what that tells me? It tells me that there's a problem in your vertical relationship with God. That's what has to get fixed. Many times, people come to me for counseling, marital counseling, get all these relationship issues. And one of the first things I ask is, how would you describe your relationship with God? What does that look like for you? How do you view God? And many times it'll be something like, I don't know, I just kind of view God as this cosmic killjoy that's just waiting for me to mess up so that he can lower the boom. And then you got some who, you know, they're so messed up in their thinking about God because they have this idea of God being this like doting grandpa who just, he's just consumed with making our life on this earth better. And when that doesn't happen, then they, they get disillusioned. So this has everything to do with, with the heart of the matter. Don't just go through the motions. You see, as I learned to worship God as creator, I learned to see others as his creation, made in his image. As I learned to worship God as sovereign Lord, I learned to trust his control and be less controlling myself. As I learned to worship God as Savior, I begin to see my own sin and his mercy more clearly, allowing me to extend mercy to others, keeping me from being judgmental and condemning. I can extend to them the mercy that I myself have received and point them to the true Savior. Let's conclude then with verses 25 and 26. Wonderful words of life. So once Jesus has taught this Samaritan woman what true worship is, he now points her to the true Savior. 
as he reveals himself to her in wonderful, powerful words. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. In other words, he's going to set all this straight, right? But then check out what Jesus, how he responded in verse 26. He said to her, I who speak to you am he. Without denying the truth of what Jesus is saying, she tries to put him off by telling him that the Messiah will come and tell us all things. Jesus' response to her is as powerful as it is brief. Notice he doesn't say explicitly, I am the Messiah, though that's certainly part of what he means. He says more by saying less. By leaving out the word Messiah or Christ, Jesus ends up saying, I am is the one speaking to you. Or I am he, the one speaking to you. Or the one speaking to you is I am. This is technically the first I am statement of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Now we're more familiar with the seven I am statements and we'll be looking at those as we make our way through this series. I am the bread of life, I'm the light of the world, I'm the the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life. The truth in the life, I am the true vine. We'll see all of those. But in each of those, Jesus is identifying something significant about himself. But he's also echoing God's self-disclosure to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. You see how the Old and New Testaments tie together? At the burning bush... As God is commissioning Moses to go back to Egypt to lead his people out of bondage, Moses asks God, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am sent me to you. This I am becomes the basis for the covenant name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh, which is a variation for the Hebrew expression for I am. So when Jesus reveals himself to this Samaritan woman as the Messiah, he actually reveals himself to be so much more than she would have ever expected. He is I am. And all she needs for salvation is to truly believe Jesus' simple and profound statement. If she believes, she will receive the living water and will become a true worshiper. So if I started with the question, I want to end with one. Are you a worshiper? Now, I know fundamentally we are all worshipers in the fact that we all worship something, something or someone, right? And fundamentally, all sin is idolatry. All sin, in whatever form it takes, is fundamentally idolatry. But are you a worshiper? In light of the text that we've just looked at together, maybe I could expand on it a little bit by asking this. Why are you here? And I'm not asking that because I don't want you to be here. Okay? But why are you here? Have you come out of a sense of obligation or habit? Is there some cultural pressure, maybe some family expectations driving you here? Are you here to worship God? Are you here because you believe in Jesus? Those who worship God must worship in spirit 
and in truth, coming with sincere hearts of faith and in alignment with what God has revealed about himself in his word. Those who come to worship God in spirit and in truth do so by the power of his grace changing our hearts and aligning them with his heart and come in in worship and encounter God and are forever changed by that encounter. And what does that mean? That means you come with sin and shame, much like this Samaritan woman, and it's laid bare and met with mercy and grace. Loneliness and despair are laid open and they're met with love and hope. Arrogance and presumption are laid open and are turned by God's Spirit into humility and repentance. Don't waste the time God gives you on the Lord's Day as we gather to worship Him. Come prepared to meet with Him. Come expecting to receive from Him. Come offering sincere worship from your heart to Him. Come and let Him meet with you and do in you the work which only He can do. And you may be someone here this morning, you say, Pastor, I have been in many services like this. Only a few times have I been to a worship service. Maybe you would even describe yourself right now as an atheist or an agnostic not real sure about God. Maybe you're a little more sensitive to the things of God and you would consider yourself a seeker. You're searching, looking for answers, looking for what satisfies. I would love to have a conversation with you. Any of our pastors would love to have a conversation with you and open God's word with you and share with you fundamentally what Jesus Christ has done in our lives so that you can know with certainty that you're a worshiper, imperfect, but one who is striving in every way to glorify God and worship as we worship in spirit and in truth. If we could for just a moment bow our heads together. It's my firm belief that everyone in the room today will make some kind of a decision whether you make that decision public or you articulate it to someone, you will make a decision as to what you'll do with what you've just heard. You might choose to ignore it. Uh, you might choose to be rather indifferent to it. Or you might choose to embrace it. And it may be time for you today to take an initial step of faith whereby you acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. That you are spiritually dead. Jesus Christ came and died and rose from the dead, conquering death, so that spiritually dead people could be made alive. If that's you today, I want to invite you to come. Take that step of faith. If you'd like to have an extended conversation, I would love to do that as well. would love to meet with you. If you're joining us online today, you're watching by live stream, we would love to have a conversation with you. Father, we thank you today for this conversation this divine appointment 
we see the Lord Jesus having with this Samaritan woman. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who may be struggling in shame and guilt, looking for something somehow, some way to give them hope. Lord, I thank you for the hope of the gospel. It's found in Jesus Christ, the one who died in our place. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, we thank you. I pray that we could leave here today knowing that we're true worshipers who desire in every way to worship you in spirit and in truth. We love you. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.